Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 46, After Pythagoras. This episode is the first part of a trilogy about what happened to the powerful mystique and figure of Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans after there was no Pythagoras and there were no Pythagoreans. It turns out that almost everything within Western esotericism which people think of as Pythagorean, is from this later period. Let me give an example. As I was saying, this will be a trilogy of episodes. Why? Because the number three is the first expression of unity in the multiple, bringing the transcendent monad of the one and the fragmentation of the dyad into synthesis. The triad has a special beauty and fairness beyond all numbers, primarily because it is the very first to make actual the potentialities of the monad, oddness, perfection, proportionality, unification, limit. The three is thus the number of manifestation in the world, a manifestation which arises from the primordial one through the dyad, an unfolding which can be illustrated by the progression from point to line to plane, and so on. Now, I'm willing to bet that Many listeners hearing this will find that it sounds vaguely Pythagorean. Indeed, in quite a lot of Western esoteric literature, any metaphysical speculations involving number will more often than not carry the label Pythagorean. In earlier traditional Western esotericism, this was a very popular form of speculation, which we know as arithmology. Authors like Philo of Alexandria, Plutarch, Plotinus, and Proclus, among others, genuinely experimented with numbers in this way, or in related ways, and themselves often referred such speculations back to the big guy, Pythagoras, or to the other authors whom they knew as Pythagoreans, but whom we would call pseudo-Pythagoreans or neo-Pythagoreans. But if we turn to the Theology of Arithmetic, a work on arithmology, which was handed down to us as being by the Platonist Iamblichus, but which is probably based on the work of the 2nd century mathematical writer Nicomachus of Gerasa, we get the real stuff in its pure form. And in fact, we've just quoted that work in our description of the triad. Not all of the quote, but part of it was from the Theology of Arithmetic. Now this text, and many other texts which we shall be discussing in this episode, have one thing in common. They are not by Pythagoreans. Or rather, they are not by the Pythagoreans we discussed in our earlier triad of episodes, 16 through 18, that is the early Italian followers of Pythagoras. In some cases, the works we're going to be discussing are pseudo-Pythagorean texts, that is, texts claiming to come from early Pythagoreanism, whether being by Pythagoras or by his followers or so on, and in other cases, as in the case of the Theologumena Arithmeticae, these are neo-Pythagorean texts, that is, texts which operate in a philosophical world which developed after Plato, the early academy, and Aristotle, which use their ideas but somehow also link themselves with a notional Pythagorean tradition, while not claiming to be Pythagoras or his immediate followers. Now, we we saw in our earlier trilogy on Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism, that's episode 16 to 18, the arithmological symbolism of which numbers will be clear to initiates, but which I cannot obviously explain, for reasons of the oath of the holy Tetractus, in those episodes, there was an ancient person known as Pythagoras. And 
While we don't know much about the guy, we do know some stuff. And one of the things we know is that a group of people coming after him, but geographically linked, located in southern Italy, were known as Pythagoreans. These folks had some ideas which were very influential on Plato in some of his crucial later dialogues. And Plato's thought about number, the ideas of the one, the indefinite dyad, the various geometric and arithmetic passages in the dialogues and so forth, went on to be very influential on just about everybody else. In fact, one of the reasons it's so hard to discover what the early Pythagorean movement was really about is that almost all of our evidence after Plato reads doctrines that are Platonic back onto the sources, on the assumption that Plato was himself a Pythagorean and so must represent their doctrines. Now, while this is wrong, Plato sort of was a Pythagorean in as much as he was anything, or rather, like Aristotle says, he Pythagoreanized since he hung out with Pythagoreans and used stuff from them in some of his dialogues. So that's about where we left things after episode 18. The question the current trilogy will answer is, what happened next? And along the way, we will get answers to some other questions. Notably, how did an ancient teacher who taught reincarnation, vegetarianism, and founded a sort of cultic brotherhood get associated with statements like, the five is the number of man? or marriage, as it contains the triad and the dyad in balance together, or who or what is a pseudo-Pythagorean, or what is neo-Pythagoreanism, and where do I sign up? And let's not forget the Pythagoreanizers. Who were they? In this episode, we shall look at the denouement of the Pythagorean movement in the Hellenistic period. In the next episode, we shall introduce the numerical metaphysics known as arithmology, which we've been alluding to and playing with in this episode, which is constantly Pythagorized in Western esoteric literature, and we'll try to track its origins and development, see what we can find out in terms of hard facts. Lastly, in the third episode, we shall discuss the later intellectual tendency known nowadays as Neo-Pythagoreanism, a school of thought which wasn't a school of thought and which we should probably call something else, except no one can figure out what else to call it, so we call it Neo-Pythagoreanism. Taken together, these three episodes will hopefully enable listeners to separate the wheat from the chaff when they're approaching the centrally important occult science of arithmology in Western esoteric literature, and to beware of ahistorical appropriations of the name Pythagoras, which we find all the time. They will also give some idea of the historical development of what is genuinely a major influence on Western esotericism, namely arithmology and other aspects of number metaphysics, and they will give a chronologically, historically situated rundown of the evidence we have for the development of what is usually called the Pythagorean tradition, but which is probably better to call the pseudo-Pythagorean and neo-Pythagorean traditions, which as far as Western esotericism concerned, are the Pythagorean tradition. Confused yet? Well, let's start with a timeline, kind of going over old material at first, to clarify our working definitions and get a handle on what happened when. So hopefully the confusion will lessen. So in the beginning, there was Pythagoras. He lived in the 6th century, probably moved to southern Italy sometime in his life, and there he set up shop teaching. We have very, very little contemporary documentation on this man, and assessments of him range from charismatic religious teacher, and the word shaman is often invoked here in the older literature on account of the 
persistent associations of the name Pythagoras with various types of soul journey, to philosopher who taught not only vegetarianism and reincarnation, but indeed astronomy, harmony, and other scientific subjects. Everyone agrees, however, that he founded a movement known in most sources as either the Pythagoreans, the so-called Pythagoreans, or in Aristotle and Plato, often as the Italian school. So these are the folks we have been calling Pythagoreans, and we shall continue to do so. So when we talk about real Pythagoreans in this episode, as opposed to later movements, we're only trying to differentiate this early Italian tradition, which took the form of some kind of initiatory group, from later movements associated with the name of Pythagoras. Of course, this is a bit of a tendentious distinction. And to see why, we need to look at the split or schism and the fall of the Pythagoreans. We discussed this in episode 17 on Pythagoreanism. Some scholars following ancient sources think that a schism occurred between different factions of the Pythagorean movement, often interpreted as being along the lines put forth by Iamblichus in his On the Pythagorean Life. That is, one group remained sort of mystery cultish and continued on the way of life aspect of Pythagoras' teachings, while another group got into philosophy proper. And these were the guys who investigated harmonic theory, numbers, etc., etc. If it happened, this split probably happened before the middle of the 5th century, so quite soon after Pythagoras' lifetime, actually. But some scholars, such as Leonid Jmud, argue that it never actually happened. The evidence is certainly fragmentary enough that we can't really prove it one way or another. Then we have the fall of the Pythagoreans. There was apparently some kind of political hegemony for a time in southern Italy when Pythagoreans were running a number of city-states. I got very excited about this in episode 17. Sometime around the year 450, so again the middle of the 5th century, around the time when the split is meant to have occurred, they were attacked, their gathering places apparently burnt down, and the whole shtick was driven into disarray. Again, the evidence is super patchy here, but something violent definitely happened, and we don't know what their rule was like, why exactly it was opposed, or anything like that, but we do know that something went down. Now these two rather dramatic and tantalizingly difficult to pin down events, the split and the fall, bring us back to why it's hard to draw a line between real Pythagoreans and fake ones with anything like real clarity. Our doxographical sources report that the movement basically died out sometime in the 4th century. And modern scholarship agrees here. From about 350 BCE until the 1st century BCE, there's very little evidence of Pythagoreanism in any form recognizable from this earlier material we've been talking about. Unless, of course, we want to consider Plato a continuator of this tradition. However, there is scattered evidence for texts being written in this period, texts which we would tend to call pseudo-Pythagorean. But how can we be so sure they're pseudo if we're so unclear about what the real tradition was all about in the first place? We can't always, gentle listener, and your pointed question is very well taken. So while we will be talking in this episode quite a bit about pseudo-Pythagorean texts, we'll try to confine the term to works which are really pretty undeniably pseudo-Pythagorean, which in practice often means texts which are attributed to a known Pythagorean or to Pythagoras himself, but which are blatantly drawing on Platonic 
early academic and or Aristotelian materials, or are otherwise just clearly written in the Hellenistic period or later. So I hope all this is clear. To recap, there is a kind of Pythagorean Dark Age from about 350, when the last genuine dudes seem to have flourished, students of Philolaus and Eurytus and so on, Archytas, whom Plato knew personally, who was the most important Pythagorean of the 4th century probably, and Aristoxenus, who was a student of Aristotle's, who had started out as a Pythagorean and then moved to Athens and became, a, I guess, a follower of Aristotle. And he gives us very important testimony as to what the Pythagorean movement was all about in his time. And Aristoxenus perhaps edges us into the later 4th century. But then after that, silence, more or less until about the 1st century BCE, when we see what seems to be a new set of currents arising, which are the beginning of a new story, which we refer to as pseudo-Pythagorean texts and neo-Pythagoreanism. So was there literally nothing going on in those two and a half, three centuries which historians would be prepared to call Pythagorean? Unlikely, there must have been something going on, but our evidence seems to show a radical decline. Despite a few later testimonies to texts which appear probably during this time, such as the so-called Pythagorean notes. I'm erring on the side of caution here and being extra skeptical about the idea that the Pythagorean tradition either survived by mutating, and we know it did mutate because people like Philolaus are very mutant when you compare them to what we know about Pythagoras in his original form, or went underground and survived in secret or whatever. I'm going to go with a decent-sized scholarly consensus and just say that Pythagoreanism fizzled out. Now, this is not unexampled in the history of philosophy, and Stoicism is a great example. It went from being one of the most influential schools of philosophy across the Greco-Roman world, if not the single most influential, to simply dying out. Times changed, and with them, ways of thinking, and Stoicism didn't cut it anymore in the 4th century CE. So something very like this may well have happened to the Pythagoreans, who still held on to the old traditions. They just succumbed to the force of a new post-Platonic way of thinking, philosophically, but of course, the mystique lives on. But let's just say here that despite my desire to play it safe, there is no really certain argument for the position that the Pythagorean tradition simply died out in the 4th century. And maybe at least some of the later so-called Pythagorean ideas are genuinely part of that tradition in some way, perhaps some of the texts preserving echoes of genuinely early material. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And one could make the argument vis-a-vis -vis Plato that his work represents a kind of mutant continuation of elements of Pythagoreanism, keeping in mind that Plato was a rampant plunderer. So we'd be rather surprised if we didn't find anything in his work which is sort of riffing off Pythagorean ideas. Now, this is exactly what will happen to him in the later Platonist tradition. He will be considered a sort of successor of Pythagoras as the whole of Greek philosophy was subjected to a process of canonization or rejection, with a lot in common with later ideas about perennial philosophy that students of later Western esotericism will be familiar with. So in this way of thinking, among the late Platonists, Pythagoras became the great founder figure of philosophy as a whole, with Plato as one of his successors. But more on that in later episodes. Let's just say for now that the Pythagorean way of life disappears from our evidence during the 4th century BCE. And this brings us to our proper subject for this episode. What happened next? Well, I hope that was a helpful recap. 
And a few things happened next. The first is that while the Pythagoreans seemingly no longer existed, their literary output increased massively. For the pseudo-Pythagorean texts of the Hellenistic period, the books to check out are two works by Holger Tesleff, published in the 1960s. The first volume discusses, categorizes, and tries to date all the texts, and the second gives the texts themselves in edited form. As we shall see, many scholars would argue for a later date for a lot of this material, and Tesleff's Hellenistic dating is seen by many as too early, but his work is nevertheless the business, so you must check it out if you want to get into these texts. So what kind of texts are we talking about here? Some of them claim to be written by Pythagoras himself, or by his close associates, or by later Pythagoreans. Other texts are anonymous, such as the Hieroi Logoi, or the Golden Verses, but nevertheless they reference alleged Pythagorean materials and are attributed in some way to Pythagoras or Pythagoreans. So the, the Hieroi Logoi are often attributed to Pythagoras himself. Most of these works are written in the Doric dialect of Greek, which is the type of Greek that was spoken in southern Italy. So if these texts didn't originate in southern Italy, people went to some effort to make them read authentically as Doric Greek productions, often with partial success, like Hollywood actors doing Cockney accents or whatever. Sometimes the Doric doesn't read as proper Doric. But while Teslev thinks the majority of these writings did emerge from southern Italy in the 3rd century BCE and later, scholarly consensus leans toward either Rome or Alexandria, or both, between about 150 BCE and 100 CE, so much later, about 200 years later and in a different place. Since, as we shall see when we discuss Neo-Pythagoreanism, these two places, Rome and Alexandria, are the places where we see a resurgence of interest in, well, Pythagoreanism, only now it's something new. The fact is, we can't know when all these texts were written, but perhaps we can say that it was sometime during the Hellenistic late Republican Roman period for the most part. That isn't much of a dating, but at least we can say that they weren't written in the 5th century by genuine South Italian disciples of Pythagoras. But before we get to these texts, we should also discuss another thing that happens in our period, the Hellenistic period, which is that one of the many posthumous revivals of the Pythagorean mystique is to be seen in the Greek world. In a number of scattered references from the 4th century onward, we seem to see the development of a typical, quote, Pythagorean way of being. A kind of lifestyle choice, perhaps, would be the, the sort of modern way of putting it. It's notable that our sources for people like this, who are generally referred to as Pythagoreanizers, are often comic playwrights, so they're basically making fun of these people. And these Pythagoreanizers are typically dirty, they don't bathe, they don't shave, they're vegetarian, they often wear tattered old clothes. In fact, the scholar of Pythagoreanism, Carl Huffman, has called them Pythagorean hippies, which probably captures the flavor of what was going on pretty well. So alongside the development of these texts we're going to look at, there was a whole kind of mystique which seems not to have been particularly philosophical in any rigorous sense, but which did involve acting in certain ways, which historians of philosophy are more likely to associate actually with the cynics, who were a philosophic movement who were famous for doing obscene things in public and generally despising every form of politesse. When we turn to Neo-Pythagoreanism, we shall see the return of the Pythagoreanizer, this time in Roman garb, 
In fact, one of the first century Roman Pythagoreanizers went around in a black toga as a mark of his Pythagoreanism. We've come a long way from the probably genuine tradition that the historical Pythagoreans were clothed in white. Pythagoreanism then at Rome in the first century seems to have become something of an umbrella for a number of sort of wacky countercultural or maybe even hippie-ish practices and styles with absolutely nothing to do with early Pythagoreanism. So one aspect of the enduring mystique of Pythagoreanism was the topos of Pythagorean silence, which we discussed in episode 18. And we can now add to that topos the topos of the Pythagorean crusty. And there will be many more reimaginings of Pythagoreanism to come in the podcast. But now let's turn to our pseudo-Pythagorean texts. There are all kinds of weird and wonderful things to be found in these texts. We have, on the one hand, the kind that are most important uh, philosophically, treatises on number in various different forms, including a lot of arithmology, which we shall be concentrating on in this episode. And we have a lot of other central themes like archai, that is fundamental constituents of reality, what, it, what is the most basic principle of reality. And in these texts, these are often expressed as pairs of opposites. We have texts on harmonics, both scientific and what you might call metaphysical harmonics. So these texts, which we might call metaphysical texts, are generally elaborations of, or mutations of, or détournement of ideas from Plato's dialogues, the early academy of Plato's successors, and ideas found in Aristotle. So here we are quite happy to call them pseudo-Pythagorean texts, and we consider them as post-Platonic developments within Greek philosophy, which for whatever reason were attributed to Pythagoras and his followers. But the pseudo-Pythagorean corpus also includes works on the occult virtues of plants and stones. It includes many Orphic poems and works, most of which don't survive, works on kingship and statesmanship, ethical works describing the virtues, um, advice for how to live your life, usually somewhat ascetic in nature, you know, don't overindulge in food, stay away from sex, this kind of stuff. Works on physics, which as we have seen was a kind of a catch-all category for anything to do with the physical world in ancient Greek philosophy. So that could be anything from the weather to how rocks are formed. Astronomy features heavily, and we even have some magical material of a pseudo-Pythagorean nature, although it doesn't really survive, unfortunately. So what's the upshot? It's very difficult to find a conceptual thread that will link every single text and by which we could characterize them all as being Pythagorean in any meaningful sense doctrinally. Basically, we call them Pythagorean, or rather pseudo-Pythagorean, because they are attributed to Pythagoras himself, followers of his, or in some other way, they present themselves as being Pythagorean, often by adopting the Doric dialect, which is sometimes really cheesy and obviously not written by a native Doric speaker, as we've mentioned. So pseudo-Pythagoreanism is a kind of genre rather than a school of thought with a solid doctrine. That's the first point to get across here. Now, I'd like to discuss a few of these texts in a bit of detail in a moment, because some of them play a very important role in the later development of Western esoteric thought. But firstly, we should make a quick note on the early academy. We've mentioned these folks before, but another little reminder here might be in order. When Plato died, the institution he founded, if it was an institution, which is called the Academy because it was situated in a bit of Athens, a grove sacred to 
the Athenian hero Academos. This carried on for some time. The first three Platonic successors, Speusippus, Xenocrates, and Polymo, were each philosophers in their own right, and each taught differently, wrote books with different ideas, and so on. As we mentioned in our study of Stoic physics in episode 45, a chief concern of these early academicians was reconciling the Platonic dialogues with Plato's oral teachings, seemingly looking for some kind of systematic philosophy based on these materials. And we don't know enough about Plato's oral teachings, but we do know involve two things called the one and the indefinite dyad as fundamental archai or principles of reality. So you've got a one and a dyad. This is stuff with a sort of Pythagorean air about it, right? Now, modern scholars think that these were precisely Platonic doctrines, not Pythagorean. But because there is a long history of reading these ideas as an example of Plato being Pythagorean, we end up with a situation we're in today where anyone who brings up the one as first principle or talks about dyads and things like that is going to be labeled as somehow Pythagorean or Neo-Pythagorean. Now, the point here is that the speculations in the early academy, while much of them is lost, clearly did run with this idea of the one as a first principle, making it a central theme of their philosophy, and also with the dyad. And Spusippus and Xenocrates both seem to have been very concerned with number and ratio in the universe, as well as with nous, the transcendent intellect, which they also want to fit into their scheme in various ways. So nous becomes a number, nous becomes the dyad, so on and so forth. So when we say that one lot of pseudo-Pythagorean texts, mainly the ones dealing with metaphysics, show the influence of the early academy, this is what we're talking about. The discussions in many of these texts can be traced back, with some holes in the evidence, to ideas of Speusippus and Xenocrates, as well as Plato himself. As for Aristotle, his doctrine of ten categories seems to have been especially popular among pseudo-Pythagoreans, but other Aristotelian ideas appear in their texts as well, as we shall see. So, that's a little rundown of the actual philosophic background to many of our metaphysical uh, pseudo-Pythagorean texts. Now let's have a quick look at the Crème du Pseudo-Pythagorisme, a selection of texts and writers who had an especially important later reception. For these authors, I will not be giving bibliographical details in the notes to this episode, because you can check them out in the alphabetical listing in Holger Teslev's 1961 book, which gives you the locations where each and every fragment can be found. So I won't redo his work, I'll just refer you to him. Some authors, like Brontinus, also have Diels Kranz numbers. His are DK1, 106 to 107. That is, they are treated by Diels Kranz, the great collectors of pre-Socratic philosophy, as pre-Socratic philosophers. That is, is genuine Pythagoreans. But no one today is going to think that Brontinus's metaphysics were written down before Plato's work, for reasons which will become clear shortly. So let's start with Brontinus, also no, sometimes known in the manuscripts as Brotinus. This gentleman does not survive, except in fragments, but his works were influential on the development of late Platonism. He is said to have written several lost Orphic works, thought to have been poems, but it's his metaphysical work which may have been crucial for the evolution of Western esotericism. This survives only in about ten lines of Doric prose from a work entitled On Nous and Dianoia, that is, on two different types of cognition, Nous being the type favored in Plato as the kind of 
thinking or knowing which deals with realities in themselves. So nous is what sort of grasps the forms, while dianoia is more like regular everyday discursive thought, which can have wrong opinions and so on and so forth. Now, in Brontinus's work, ancient readers learned that the nous is simple, while dianoia is composed of parts. It also identified the one, tohen, with the good, toagathon, making a link between the realities put forward in Plato's dialogue, the Parmenides, and Plato's Republic, respectively. So remember, if you're just reading Plato, you have the one being discussed in one dialogue, you have the good itself being discussed in another dialogue, and you would not necessarily make the leap that, ooh, they must be the same thing. The late Platonists do make this link, and seemingly Brontinus is one of the first to do this. So both of these developments, this uh, discussion of nous and dianoia and the hen agathon um, unity, will be hugely significant when we turn to late Platonism, since they are both core doctrines from Plotinus onward. And this work of Brontinus has been seen by some as an important source for philosophers like Plotinus, or at least an important predecessor. We'll return to this question in our episode on Neo-Pythagoreanism, because in at least some of these texts, and this is one of them, some scholars see something like an identifiable tendency of thought with its own characteristic structures, and Brontinus is definitely one of the more important Neo-Pythagoreans, according to this approach. In other words, there may be a kind of philosophic tendency in antiquity called legitimately Neo-Pythagoreanism with its own sort of doctrines, and it may be that Brontinus is an example of that. We'll have to come back to that later. Next, we will turn to another text, the so-called Golden Verses of Pythagoras, or the Golden Verses of the Pythagoreans. This is a poem in 71 hexameter lines. Its dating is a huge problem, <laughs> um, dates suggested ranging from 350 BCE, so early Hellenistic, right up to 400 CE, late Roman, have been suggested. And while it is mentioned by name in around 200 CE, we can't say that the text we have now is that old, because the work seems to have been redacted many times, and it's seemingly a kind of a hodgepodge. So when it took the form we have it now, we can't actually be sure. The work was popular in antiquity, and often cited as a source for the Pythagorean way of life one which is depicted as quite austerely philosophical, so no magic, no kind of mystery cultish stuff, but much more about living the good life in a sort of post-Platonic way. And this work was also very popular in the Renaissance, because Ficino translated the commentary on the verses by the ancient Platonist Hierocles, along with a number of other pseudo-Pythagorean symbola, on the symbola, you can see episode 26 of the podcast to get an idea of what they're all about. So these materials then went from Ficino's Latin translation to influence the Latin-speaking world as the best-known source for ancient Pythagoreanism. And as it turns out, this ancient Pythagoreanism, as expounded in the verses, was not incompatible with a Christian Platonism. So the golden verses tell us to respect the gods and our parents, to exercise self-control, and so forth as well as promising a disembodied immortality for the soul. So with a few tweaks, this is all very acceptable to Christians. This work, as J.C. Tom has documented, actually became one of the most popular Greek texts in the Renaissance and was even included in Greek grammars as an exercise text. So an important one for both ancient Platonists, like Hierocles, who wrote the commentary on it, 
and for later esotericists who were looking back to the Greek tradition to find traces of the perennial philosophy, and especially in Pythagoreanism. As late as Thomas Taylor, the 19th century English Platonist, who published an edition of it and translation of it alongside the works of Ocellus, which we're getting to, the verses were read as being the genuine, legit account of the Pythagorean bios, or way of life. So when people talk about the Pythagorean way of life, very often they are either referencing the golden verses or unknowingly referencing echoes of the golden verses in other literature. Now, there are two other pseudo-Pythagorica, which were also translated into Latin early in the Renaissance, and which had a big Renaissance and later influence. And these are the work of Timaeus of Locri, also known as Pseudo-Timaeus, and Ocellus. So let's look at Timaeus first. Now, listeners will hopefully recall Timaeus. He is the speaker in Plato's dialogue of that name, who narrates the great cosmological myth, as we discussed in episode 27. Well, we promised then that Timaeus would be back, and here he is. So, we have a wonderful example here of a literary character who comes to life and becomes an author, something which is disturbingly common in the history of Western esotericism. So, Timaeus, we'll recall, is, as far as we can tell, a literary fiction of Plato's. Even if he is a literary mask for Archytas, a, a genuine late Pythagorean whom Plato knew, he was still not a real guy named Timaeus, as far as we know. He is depicted in Plato's dialogue as being from Locri, a Doric-speaking city-state, and he knows a thing or two about a very interesting cosmology involving numerical ratios, a spherical cosmos with planets and the sun and moon orbiting around the Earth, which is in the center, a demiurgic creator figure who makes a world soul, and then the world soul goes on to do some more creative activity, the elements, fire, air, earth, and water, being composed of geometrical figures, and so forth. Well, all of this is basically what we get in the work of Pseudo-Timaeus, only it's in Doric. So we have a Damiurgos instead of a Demiurgos, and instead of Musike for music we get Mosika, and so on. Now, there is a, a book entitled Mathematica attributed to Timaeus, but we only have the title of that. However, the surviving work on the soul of the cosmos and on nature is wonderful. It contains all the things I've just mentioned from the account given in Plato's Timaeus, but also has a few intriguing differences. The planets, for instance, each have their own orbits as opposed to the Platonic model where they all run along the orbit of the different and there's also some ethical material, a few elements perhaps reliant on Plato's Republic rather than the Timaeus, and so on and so forth. So, in short, this is exactly the kind of work you would expect to find if you thought that Plato's Timaeus was a Pythagorean dialogue, and that the character Timaeus was a real Pythagorean person whom Plato knew, and that this Timaeus wrote a book, which was Plato's source maybe for the doctrines of Timaeus, and here's the book. It has all the stuff you find in the Timaeus, basically. And this is how it was read by later generations, thus reconfirming that Plato was indeed a Pythagorean with some lovely circularity of argument. There is, however, one really intriguing item in the text of Pseudo-Timaeus which one does not find in Plato, or one can find it in Plato, because you can find just about anything you want in Plato, but if it is there, it's very esoteric. This is a teaching that the legends 
of punishment after death, such as we find in the myth of Ur in the Republic, in Plato, and also in Greek mystery cults and some other Greek religious contexts, including the Orphic context. These legends of punishment are useful, but they are fictions. So, no post-mortem punishments for Pseudo-Timaeus. This really flies in the face of Plato's myth of the afterlife in the Republic. If we are indeed meant to read Plato's myth as some kind of account of what Plato thinks might happen after we die. What we don't ever get in Plato is someone saying, look, we need myths about afterlife punishments to, I don't know, coerce people into acting well, but they're not really true. That we don't find unless we find it esoterically. Perhaps the author of the Pseudo-Timaeus was an esoteric reader of Plato who thought that Plato didn't really believe in such punishments. This is a perfectly possible reading of the father of Western esotericism. And this testimony from Pseudo-Timaeus may thus be an example of an early or fairly early esoteric reading of Plato. Or at least that's my thoughts on it. So that's the Pseudo-Timaeus. It's basically the Timaeus creation myth rewritten into, into Doric dialect with a few extra bits thrown in from other Platonic works. And this one funny thing about postmortem punishments. Now, we have another complete short treatise which survives in extenso, and this is On the Nature of the Universe, attributed to a certain Ocellus. It is first mentioned by the Roman scholar Varro, whom we shall be meeting again when we discuss the Neo-Pythagorean craze, which seems to have swept through the Roman intelligentsia in the late Republic. So most scholars would date it to sometime in the first half of the first century BCE. Although there's no real reason it couldn't be earlier, as long as it comes after Aristotle. It has to come after Aristotle because it plagiarizes Aristotle. So this work is preserved in Koine Greek. This is the sort of standard Greek dialect which developed in the Hellenistic world. It's what the biblical New Testament is written in and lots of other texts. It became a more and more international standardized Greek as time went on. But it is thought that the original of Ocellus was written in the normal Pythagorean Doric or pseudo-Doric dialect. Ocellus is mostly concerned with giving a cosmology and physics, which are pretty Aristotelian. Ocellus's eternal geocentric universe, its interactions of the four elements in the sublunary world, and more all depend on Aristotle. And the work has passages which are actually pretty much lifted straight from Aristotle's On Generation and Corruption, although sometimes they're paraphrases. It moves to the usual stock ethical material later on, just like the Timaeus text does, and then it ends on a discussion of the nature of the triad, which is a little bit of arithmology which may derive from Aristoxenus. He was the ex-Pythagorean who studied with Aristotle that we mentioned earlier. So, Ocellus's text is an interesting window on ways in which the Pythagorean label could be extended. You don't have to base yourself on Plato or talk much about dyads and ones, to be accepted as a Pythagorean in Hellenistic antiquity. It is, in fact, hard for us to see what the limits might have been of what could be published as a Pythagorean text. We don't have any pseudo-Pythagorica which deliver Epicurean ideas, for example. But as a thought experiment, one could imagine such a text existing. It would be a weird one, and it would sort of go against the grain of the generality of these texts, because they often tend to extol piety to the gods um, which an Epicurean text wouldn't do. But then, what have the occult properties of plants got to do with either the historical Pythagoras or with any of these Platonic, academic, or Aristotelian ideas we've been discussing? But there were texts uh, dealing with the occult properties of plants in circulation as Pythagorean texts. So 
it's really difficult to say what the boundary might have been of what you could get away with publishing as a Pythagorean text. We also don't know much of the critical reception of these texts in antiquity. It may be people read Ocellus and went, huh, calls himself a Pythagorean. This is nothing but Aristotle. It's, it's quite possible that critical readers were doing that all the time. We just don't know. But what is certainly true is that in the Renaissance and beyond, within Western esotericism, this text is latched onto as yet another precious gem surviving of the ancient Pythagorean wisdom. So, there we have a very brief introduction to a few key texts, which has hopefully been well enough contextualized that listeners are getting some idea of how these texts arose, and how broad was the shadow cast by the Pythagorean mystique, not only in philosophy and the written world, but in day-to-day life in Hellenistic Greece. Pythagoras and and the Pythagoreans were somehow names to conjure with. But this shadow will get much broader as we enter the late Roman Republic, and it will swell to mighty dimensions indeed in the imperial period. All this and more shall be discussed in the triadic third episode of this series, where the dyad is harmonized with the monad, resulting in a synthesis of perfect knowledge. But speaking of metaphysical triads and so on, there is one idea which begins to be developed in some of our pseudo-Pythagorean texts, the idea of arithmology, or the use of number as a metaphysical principle, and all the kind of fascinating ideas that that basic approach brings with it, which we shall discuss in the next episode. Out of the welter of ideas associated with Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism in our period, the one which seems to have sort of had the most staying power is the idea that numbers are the fundamental basis of reality and that the numbers themselves have particular metaphysical characteristics which can be uncovered. So that's arithmology, and it's played a big role in the history of Western esotericism, so stay tuned for that next time. And until then, stay esoteric.